need to adjust this here? Oh, that's good. And I have my watch here to make sure I, I guess, talk long enough and not too long. It's always dangerous when you get a priest up here, so that's to help <laughs> me. We're going to be reflecting on priesthood and specifically on one of the areas of, you know, of life of priesthood. I want to start out by, well, prayer, praying specifically for the priests of our diocese, uh, priests perhaps that you have known in this area and other areas. And I also want to include uh, a very heartfelt prayer for a new bishop, that God would soon send us a holy priest. So let us remember we're in the holy presence of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Risen Lord Jesus, you love us with all your priestly heart. Hear our heartfelt prayer for priests. We pray for faithful and fervent priests, for unfaithful and tepid priests, for priests who labor home and abroad, for tempted priests, for lonely and desolate priests, for young priests, old priests, sick priests, dying priests, and for the souls of priests in purgatory. Merciful Jesus, remember that they are but weak and frail human beings. Give them a deep faith, a bright and firm hope, and a burning love. We ask that in their loneliness you comfort them, in their sorrow you strengthen them, in their frustrations you show them that it is through suffering that the soul is purified. Eternal High Priest, keep them close to your heart and bless them abundantly in time and in eternity. Amen. First of all, I want to thank uh, Dr. Burke. Well, because this is my first time I've ever had a chance to be part of uh, Theology on Tap, and it's a privilege to be able to be here. Um, I know that this is a wonderful way to get a group together, kind of an informal situation, and to reflect and talk and think and learn about the life of the church and why we Catholics do what we do. And the title for tonight is kind of intriguing, Men in Black, now, perhaps some of you are familiar with the movie Men in Black and think of Will Smith. And those of you who don't know, kind of the thesis of the movie, there's um, this secret covert agency, so secret, nobody knows about them, and they're basically to help patrol aliens. Now, not aliens from other countries, but literally aliens from outer space and a very dedicated group, and they have to basically give their whole lives in a very prestigious group. Now, my secretary, my office manager, said that, well, Father David, you know, a man in black, and you're going to, of course, have your shades and all this and try to portray that image. Well, I don't know if I could pull that off, but I think, <laughs> but I think it is an interesting way to consider at the beginning on priesthood, on... Who is the priest today in the Vatican II Church? We're going to, of course, be talking about one specific way, but we live in a time where, at least in my pastoral experience, sometimes a lot of people in the pews do not know what um, priesthood's about or what our church teaches on priesthood and what the daily realities are. I think if we are going to be the church that the Lord desires us to be, whether we are family, whether we are elderly, whether we are single, whether we are young persons, we all need to support each other's vocations and know how we each build up the body of Christ. And that certainly includes the place of priests. We are not some elite, prestigious group in the church, but we do have our place, as every other baptized Christian talks. As I, again, begin tonight... I want to first, again, put this in the context in the broadest way about priesthood. I am a priest of the John Paul II generation. I, was, I studied in Rome. I was ordained in 1998, so I'm coming up on eight years. I had the privilege to be close physically to John Paul II, as well as uh, theologically, to hear his teaching and to be formed by him. Now, speaking for myself and a lot of my um, confreres that I was ordained with, my priest friends, 
let me say this because this is going to be important when we get into our question for tonight. I love being a priest. I love being a priest. I know that God called me to this vocation. The church called me to this vocation. And um, it's a wonderful thing. And as I step into our question for tonight, I want to share one personal story that explains for me and illustrates a little bit about the power of the vocation of priesthood, power in the sense of the beauty, the strength, the joy, and the place. When I was ordained by Bishop Carlson in 1998 with three, four, four other of my classmates, um, as with all ordinations, you know, you have all the priests who are come forward and lay hands on as you are kneeling and so forth. And obviously you're very intent, you're praying in the power of the Spirit and you know, you're really not paying attention. One elderly priest that I did not know as he was laying his hands and before he went on, he said, Father David, I am Father Valentine Sedlak, do you know who I am? I am the priest that baptized you. Now, let me share why that is quite impressive. I was baptized out in Fredericktown, Pennsylvania, where my dad's people come from, and I had not met Father Sedlak since I was that baby at the font. And my little Polish grandmother had, of course, very proud that her grandson was to be a priest, had passed on the news to everyone, including Father Sedlak, and this very old priest in his 80s got on the computer, pulled up travel sites, and he, without telling me or my family, bought a plane ticket, rented a car in Sioux Falls, and showed up at my ordination at St. Joseph's Cathedral, not too far from here. That is priesthood. That is the joy across generations, across geogra geography. There is something about what priesthood is and what we do that is very special, as every vocation is. All right, so let me get us into our problem for tonight. But first, before we really get into it, I want to lay out a few assumptions about where Father David Stevens is coming from. I want you to know how I'm approaching this talk, um, the things that I take for granted. And let me just name a few of those. First of all, as we talk about this, I start with the assumption that every human being and every Christian is created by God with equal dignity. Men and women, different gifts, but we are all sons and daughters of God. And so I start with that. It's very key that we have to, without fail, state that equality in Christ. Another assumption I have is that the church which is not a human institution like the Kiwanis Club, but a divine organism, cannot live without the Eucharist, and thus cannot live without the sacrament of holy orders. This is something that is at the heart and the core of who we are and what we do. Another one, goes like this, I know that in the church and beyond, there are a diversity of opinions and understandings about the church and her teachings. I know that even within the church, there are many who perhaps do not understand why the church has only a male-only priesthood or a variety of other teachings. And I would go with the assumption I ascribe good motives to those people. So this is not a confrontational in us against them. I think that's important to say. Uh, two more, and I think these are all going to underpin everything I have to say. Another one is that as I talk tonight, I am talking in the realm of theology and faith. What I present to you is not a matter of politics or economics or sociology or various ideologies, feminist, or any other one that you want to pull out. We are talking about something that does not neatly fall into human categories. 
It's hard to understand because we want to say, aha, the church is a human institution, and so we want to look at it from, you know, how this works with politics or any other category. Well, the church does not neatly lend herself to that kind of categorization. And then finally, you have to know, and this sums up everything I'm going to say tonight. Everything I say tonight can be summarized with a Latin phrase, sentire cum ecclesia, which means to think with the church. You are not going to hear someone that has come to give my own opinions and my interesting theories about either why the church is right or why the church is wrong. I am, if nothing else, a man of the church. That is what this means. I get to the privilege of wearing this collar. I am going to be presenting to you the rich teachings of our church that are far beyond David Stevens. These are the teachings of saints and martyrs, of holy men and women of every time and place, and they certainly have more to say than anything I could say, however eloquent I may. Two preliminary parts that I have to throw out that are very key. First of all, a question. What is the human person? Now, I'm not going to talk as much as I, we could talk on that, but it's very important to realize that if we're going to know about priesthood and what we say about this, we have to know what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a body, mind, and soul? We could go carefully through the teachings, for example, of the church's magisterium, especially the teachings of John Paul II, and look at, expound, draw out what we know in the scriptures. For example, in Genesis 1.27, that man and woman was made in the divine image. Man and woman. It is part of God's plan that from the beginning they were made male and female. That's not an accidental thing. You know, if we really wanted to get very deep and so forth, and I want to keep it on a good, I mean, obviously a, a good level, but um, I mean, a, a challenging level, we could talk about such things as what is, an, what is accident in, in, in philosophy. An accident, for example, is whether I was born in the United States or in China. That doesn't mean much before God, because our nationalities or so forth, those are accidental features. But the fact that we are born as male or female in our humanity, that is key. We come into the world as male and female, and we're actually going to take that reality with us in our risen bodies to heaven. I can only experience the world, other people, relationships, as a man. That's part of... that's how God has incarnated me in the world, and every one of us is the same. Sometimes we hear theories that, well, you know, to be male or female, those are only roles that society puts on us, and it really doesn't matter. That is certainly a teaching and a thought pattern out there, but that is not the churches. Men and women are different. That should not be terribly surprising not just biologically, but in our psychology, in the way we approach relationships, in the way we approach the world. What does it mean to be human? That is going to enter very deeply into this question. A second question, a preliminary question, again, before we get to the heart of the matter, is, well, what is the Catholic priesthood? I hope you agree we're getting closer, but we have to talk about these these realities. Let's see. There we go. Okay, the priesthood. Um, I'm going to quickly, you know, I, I, hope, I hope you are all familiar with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm basically going to summarize, synthesize the teachings out of this beautiful book. If you don't know what this is or you haven't gotten your hands on this, I encourage you strongly. So here we go. 
For example, we hear in the Catechism that it is through holy orders, the sacrament of bishops, priests, and deacons, that, that the mission of Christ and his apostles is continued to the end of time. So we start that the mission of Christ is going to be done in a very key way through this sacrament. We have to look at the fact that Jesus Christ is the only priest. Everything in terms of priesthood in the Old Testament, remember, in the Jewish religion, the priests of the temple had very explicit roles. They're the ones who made the blood sacrifices and on and on. But we know that that has come to an end in the Christian theology, and Jesus Christ is the one priest. What he did on the cross is a sacrifice, analogous but far different and superior to the lambs that were slaughtered every year in the Jewish temple. And Jesus Christ did not go to the temple and slaughter a lamb, but he gave his own body. So in our theology we say he is priest, he is the altar, and he is the lamb of sacrifice. Oh, wow, we could spend a whole talk just on that one line of theology. And so if there are men, if individuals like myself, Father Christensen here, I'm going to kind of point him out too, who can be called priests, it is only because there is one priest, Jesus Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, that we are only ministers of the one priest. We are only an extension of the one priesthood of Christ. A few other things to bring out the whole theology of priesthood. Very important to realize that every one of us who is baptized here tonight, whether you are single or married, whether you are widowed, whether you are an ordained priest, every one of us is a holy priest. The one priesthood of Christ extends in terms of the, 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 the priesthood of the, the laity, the priestly people, by baptism. By your baptism, you know, I'm doing two baptisms this weekend, and one of the prayers goes like this, you are to be configured to Christ who is priest, prophet, and king. Every one of you shares in that dignity as priest, prophet, and king. We are a holy people. We are called to live holy lives. We are called to go out and, by our words and actions, be a priestly people in our workplaces and schools and on and on. And yet, the sacrament of holy orders, while obviously connected with that, I can only be ordained a priest if I am first part of that holy priestly people. It's a little bit different. The ordained priesthood exists only to serve the people of God. It exists only to make sure that we reach our full maturity and be who we are called to be. Um, and so we do this, we're going to be talking a lot about this, so remember this phrase, especially if you're not familiar with this. The priest then acts in persona Christi, very important phrase. That means in Latin, to act in the person of Christ. It means that it's not so much Father David, who might or may not be a terrific homilist on any given Sunday, or who celebrates Mass so beautifully, and people might say, oh, what a wonderful guy. That may or may not be true. But the priest represents not himself, but Jesus Christ. He is effective in his words, in his sacraments, and in the confessional, and on and on, only to the extent that he is conformed to Jesus Christ in persona Christi. It also has to be said then, and this is key, because there will be those who do not understand this, even within the church. The priesthood exists only for you, the people of God. Not for us to have power and to be able to be before you and to dress up in beautiful vestments and to put ourselves on pedestals. We exist only for you. Not for our own sake, not for our own benefit, our own egos. We only exist as a ministry of service. Jesus says, I have come to serve and not to be served. Okay. 
it is time. Let's finally get into the church's arguments. Why the church would say something so, in this day and age, perhaps so silly, so ridiculous, so outrageous just to say that only men can be ordained priests. Why can the church not get with it? Why does the church not understand that it's such an unreasonable teaching? Let us see and try and understand and pray to open our hearts to at least understand and see what the church says. Let me first of all read verbatim from the Catechism number 1577 that summarizes very bluntly um, the, the, the church's teaching on this. So I quote, only a baptized man, vir in Latin, validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men, viri, to form the college of the twelve apostles. And the apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. The college of bishops with whom the priests are united in the priesthood makes the college of the twelve an ever-present, an ever-active reality until Christ's return. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. For this reason, the ordination of woman is not possible. Okay, now there's a variety uh, of, um, of reasons, and they're not equal in a sense, or they're, they're not equally extensive, but I want to throw these all out. Now, and let me say, let me point out, too, I mean, if for someone that really desires to know the church's teaching, and maybe after tonight, either you struggle or you want to still know, I encourage you, there's two documents that kind of form the church's teaching. First of all, in 1977, I think, from Paul VI, in Latin, Inter Insignoris, which is the main document, which lays out most of the teaching, okay? And then in 1994, a much smaller document by John Paul II called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis that basically, again, some 20 years had passed and it was still in many places um, a source of division and confusion and John Paul wanted and used his teaching authority to say, this is not just a passing teaching. And he used almost the highest authority in his teaching. So this is what this is based on. The first argument goes like this, simply put. This is the church's constant tradition. Okay. Now, in some ways, it's not a very satisfying argument by itself. It's not. But we have to start there. We are a people of tradition. For 2,000 years, there really was no serious breaking from this teaching, whether in the Eastern Church, whether in the Western Church, that's our part, the Roman Church, and even in the Protestant churches of the Reformation, really until the 20th century, there was no serious argument against this. We are a people of tradition. Now, again, that of itself does not solve it. You may or may not know there was, for example, in different places, slavery in the church. And so one could say, well, that was part of tradition. And that argument would have to be looked at, exactly. But we do have to start there from tradition there really was not a whole lot of problems with this. Only in the very beginning, a few sects, Gnostic sects, that was small little groups, had uh, put women in ordained ministry. But other than that, there was no one. Um, this all changed, of course, in the 20th century when the Protestant churches, and I'll be honest, I'm not as keen, I don't know the exact histories, but I know I think the Lutheran churches started in the early 20th century, and then the, the Anglican churches in the, in the 1970s. And basically, except for the Orthodox churches and the Catholic churches, we are the only ones that have this tradition. So that is the first argument. The second argument, closely connected, is that the church would say is this. 
There is a permanent value of the attitude of Christ and the apostles. In other words, the attitude of Jesus and the attitude of how the church acted through her tradition and her life teaches us something about her sacramental life. We believe that Jesus, the divine Son of God, did not merely not call women to be priests because, as is sometimes argued, that, well, he was in a Jewish context, and so he was bound by his culture. The church, very carefully, but with great politeness, disagrees. Consider Jesus' attitude towards women. He was not a cultural Jew in the sense of his time. I could, for example, if we really wanted to go and read all these passages, I'm just going to kind of go through these quickly. Remember John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Here we have a woman and many marriages alone with this Jewish man at the well, and Jesus had no problems with talking with her and drawing her and, teach, and teaching her. Very important. Or the woman suffering from hemorrhages, cited in Matthew 9, verses 20 through 22. If you don't know, in the Jewish tradition, any contact with blood, even from a woman's period, would make you unclean. It was to be avoided at all costs. And here Jesus is having close contact with the woman hemorrhaging. He heals her. He touches her. You can see why the Pharisees would have been a bit upset. Or how about the sinful woman who approaches Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee? Luke 7, 37 and following. This was obviously a public sinner. We don't know what her sin was, but she comes seeking forgiveness. And Jesus actually embarrasses his host, who's not willing to accept her and forgives her. The beautiful story of John 8 Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery and does not allow the doubled standard of allowing the man to go free and the woman to be stoned to death. Jesus has nothing of that. Um, and we could go on and on. There are, there are several others. The last one I would say, um, certainly Jesus' relationship with his mother Mary. Mary a woman who brings forth the Messiah, who was given a privileged vocation, a privileged place, and Jesus, obviously, her interactions with her um, in his ministry. She's at the foot of the cross, and she has a place with the apostles and the Acts of the Apostles, and yet, as I said, she is not given a place in official, ordained ministry. Jesus loved his mother tremendously, and God had chosen her for a tremendous vocation, and yet that was not to be what she was called to. In terms of the early church, this is, I'm going to be a little shorter here, but you know, there are a variety of attitudes in terms of the scriptural attitude in, in, in what we have in the Bible. But we know, for example, that Paul. Uh, certain women worked with him, and he calls them co-workers. We could look at Romans 16, 3 through 12, or Philippians 4, 3. Women were not foreign to the work of the early church and the building of the churches, but yet they were not called to the official ministry. One passage that's very key and sometimes is going to be quoted by opponents of the church's teaching, and I want to read it in full, Galatians 3, 27 through 28, and it goes like this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free person. There is not male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. The early church had a tremendous understanding. Paul had a tremendous understanding of the dignity the equality of men and women. But let's be clear what this says. Paul is not talking about ministry. He's talking about the fact that we are equally sons and daughters of God. And there's not a men's part of having a women's part. The more important 
equality in salvation, even though there are different gifts and different talents and different ministries that we have. All right, I'm going to keep, I'm going to move on because, all right, uh, I see that I am getting short here on time. The most important argument that the church has, and this is a, a very deep and a complex one, and um, I'm going to see, try and draw it out as much as I can, but the most important one has to do, again, what I talked about before, is in persona Christi. The priest is not just a job. Let me start out by putting it right this way. The priest is not just a job. You do a series of things. You preach, you, you, you go visit the sick, and on and on. If the priesthood was just a job, it would be unjust to keep any qualified person. But priesthood is what we call sacrament. It is part of the, what we call the nuptial mystery the wedding mystery, and we're going to draw this out. The priest acts in the place of Christ who is the bridegroom of the church. Now let's talk about that. If we look at the entire history of the scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament, there is this marvelous analogy where God, who is not a man, who is not male, who is spirit, is still, in this analogy, the, the groom, the male part, if you will, of relationship. And the church, the people of God, the Jewish people, is the feminine, the female. Now, again, if I really had time, I would take you through a variety of beautiful passages that illustrate this. For example, Hosea 1 through 3. I hope you all know the book of Hosea. It's one of my favorite books. Long story short, we have prophet Hosea who is told by God to marry a woman, I love this name, Gomer. And it's unclear from the, from, the, um, from the scriptures, but Gomer, and Hosea is told this, Gomer is either going to be or already is unfaithful to Hosea. In fact, she is described quite harshly. She is um, described as having all kinds of illicit love affairs and having children by her lovers and so forth. And poor Hosea is told, even though, Hosea, you know this, you are to marry and to be faithful to this woman. Now, if we really were studying the prophets, God uses outrageous symbolic acts like that to bring forward a point. And the punchline later on is where God says to Israel through Hosea, I will lead my beloved Israel, who, guess what, has been like Gomer, unfaithful, a prostitute, if you will. That's the language used. That's not my language. And who's been unfaithful, adulterous. And I'm going to lead her out into the desert. And I'm going to woo her again. Even though she has embarrassed me and forsaken me, I will not let her go because she is my bride and I'm her groom. And this could be like in the days of our courtship. Beautiful. God is the groom and Israel is the bride. We could look at Jer Jeremiah too that has the same theme. And a positive theme in the Old Testament, we could look at the Song of Songs. Have you ever read Song of Songs? It's erotic love poetry. It's really, if you understand what you're reading, it's, it, it might make you blush a little bit. It talks about a man and a woman pursuing each other. And it talks very intimately about her breasts and, you know, and on and on. And it ends with the consummation, the physical consummation of these lovers. Now, there's two things going on here. Number one, it's a celebration of human sexuality. Our sexuality is good. Number one. Number two, it is also a sign of God the man who is pursuing his lovely, beloved, his people. And he wants to consummate, be intimate with his beloved. Very incredible imagery. Okay, let's move to the New Testament. I'm going to move quickly here. And basically what happens with Jesus and beyond is that this Old Testament idea is transferred. Now Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And so there's this necessary, this male and female. Let me just pick one. Um, well, actually, let me, if we were to look at, um, and we use this a lot in marriage prep, you know, preparing couples for marriage. 
and very important um, passage from Ephesians 5, and you've heard this, and sometimes I know uh, eyes get rolled at this, but it's a very important passage. Let me get going with this. Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church. He himself, the Savior of the body, as the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. We're going to leave the marriage prep. There's a lot we could say about that. The whole idea is that Jesus marries his bride, his beloved, the church. Now, folks, we have to understand in sacramental theology, so I'm going to progress the argument on now. Um, I see I'm running into my problem of a wordy, of wordy priest. I guess that's um, to be expected. But sacraments, signs and symbols, they are not just chosen randomly. They have to, to image what they are representing and affecting. So in other words, if we are having, let me talk Eucharist, if we are going to talk Eucharist where we're talking about meal and sacrifice and so forth, we have to use food. We have to use food that is used at celebrations. Um, and that's why Jesus chose bread and wine. And when it's brought on the altar um, and the spirit comes and the priest prays the words of consecration, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. There is a natural resemblance in that sign that points us to the body and blood of Christ. It's the same thing with the priesthood. If the priest represents in persona Christi, and is in relationship to the church and has a ministry with the church, there has to be a natural resemblance with Christ the bridegroom. The priest stands at the altar and, you know, in all the sacraments, but the Eucharist, the catechism in our teaching says, is the most key moment, the moment of consummation and so forth. And the priest says the words of Jesus. He doesn't say, and then Jesus said, but, he, but he, sa he says, this is my body. He doesn't say, this is Jesus' body. This is Jesus' blood. The priest at that key moment is Jesus' mouth. And even though he may or may not be either a tremendous holy priest or a priest that is not very worthy of his life, it, that doesn't matter. We hope he's holy. We hope he desires to be holy. But, the, but it's Jesus acting, the bridegroom of his church, that is acting and giving his body and blood for the church, the sacrament of Calvary. This is not just a job. Obviously, there are many people, women, men, married, and so forth, who could do a lot of the things the church does. But sacrament, being, Priesthood is not a job. We are called in the midst of the people of God to mirror Christ's loving sacrament. And I will receive my salvation, my brothers and sisters, to the extent that I work and pray and strive for holiness in your midst. If I'm doing this because I get my kicks, a little authority and power and so forth, I'm going to risk the fires of hell. It comes down to that also, and this really summarizes one more argument that connects a lot of them together. We are told in our day and age that we are in a time of rights. And why does the church not give women their rights? That is such a misunderstanding of priesthood and what she's about. You see, whether it be baptism, whether it be Eucharist, whether it be priesthood, the sacraments are gifts of Jesus, not something I can say, give it to me, I demand, I have a right. See, rights language has no part of gifts that God wants to give to us. So when I was discerning some 10 years ago that perhaps I might be called to priesthood, and regardless of how I thought I'd be a wonderful priest and on and on, unless Jesus, confirmed through the church, calls me, my own thoughts and feelings on it were not worth much. 
the church confirms. Just listen to two passages, very short, on how we understand this. From John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, It was not you who chose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will remain. Jesus chooses. Jesus calls. And then another one, Mark 3, 13, where Mark is describing how he's calling his first apostles, and it says, very briefly, he went up the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus calls whom he wants, and I have no idea why he wanted David Stevens, but he called me. And Bishop Carlson in the Church of Sioux Falls confirmed that with ordination. But I had and I have no right, however good or talented I may be, to priesthood. It is gift, and I have to live it as gift. Can I have five more minutes, or are we okay? Okay. I want to summarize why this really matters. Why am I taking up your time on a Friday night? Because I think, folks, that this is very important. Um, and I'm just going to, oh, I have a lot of things here, and I'm just going to maybe, I'm going to name out a few of these real quick. You know, we live in an age where the Catholic Church is, um, you know, we, we have a lot of very important stands and in terms of our understanding of the dignity of the human person and, um, and, and, and so many other ways that other churches and other groups do not have. And we must be clear on who we are. Let me tell you, I think it's April or May, there's going to be a movie coming out that I hope that my brother priests are going to take seriously in homilies and so forth. And you've maybe heard about this, The Da Vinci Code. Maybe you've read the book. I've read the book. Very entertaining, by the way. There are many lies, and I say that deliberately, lies in that book. And it's not just a vaguely anti-Christian book. It's anti-Catholic. There are things in that book that want to make it sound like, you know, the church made up that, you know, Jesus is God and on and on. And, you know, the church is a conspiracy and, oh, at the beginning, you know, the women, you know, Mary Magdalene, oh, I want to ruin it for you, but Mary Magdalene, you know, had, you know, was up there in leadership and on and on in the church, you know, basically buried her claims and on and on and hid those. Folks, we as Catholics, we have to know who we are and we have to know what we teach. So that is the first reason. Number two, we are a Eucharist-centered church. As a young priest who is very tired these days, I've had three funerals in the last week and it's a marvelous thing to be able to, um, to serve God's people. And I've got two baptisms and on and on. And it's what God's called me to do. And again, I would do nothing in the world but we need priests. I am not convinced that our families and our parishes are doing what they can do to call forth young men to be priests. If we don't want Eucharist in the future, we, we, we had better decide, do we want Eucharist? Do we want Eucharist? If we do, we must have a strong understanding of priesthood, a strong theology. Let me name just one, well, two more. Okay, we need a strong church where, like I said, a strong priesthood, but where there are a variety of gifts, masculine and feminine, lay and clerical. I didn't really have a chance to talk a lot about in terms of, you know, we're talking priesthood tonight, but again, the gift of priesthood is only one amongst a multitude of gifts in the church. I want to share just one story. You've all probably heard of St. Therese, the little flower. You know, in her writings, in a moment of great angst and confusion, she, she writes about how she wanted to be a priest, and she wanted to be an apostle, and she wanted to go be a missionary and do all this. And, well, here she is. She's a nun, and, and she's trying to understand, well, what God wanted her to do. And she finally reads in the scriptures from 1 Corinthians about the different gifts, those who are teachers, those who are doctors, and then those who love. You know what she says? Aha, I am called to be love in the heart of the church. Now, let's don't sentimentalize that. Let's don't make that saccharine. 
We live in a time when we are called to have people who are loved to the point of death within our church. There's ways to do that as priests, as lay people, as husbands and wives, as single people, and on and on. And there's masculine ways of doing that and feminine ways of doing this. One last point with this. I, as a priest, am concerned. You know, we, we need to drop our young women, and not just young women, women of all ages, because they have gifts to share, and they are very active in our churches. Priests and others must Celebrate those, draw those forth. They must take their place. You know, it's only been, what, 30 years, 40 years since Vatican II. We are still striving to put this into practice, but we must call that forth. We also must call forth masculine gifts. You know what I'm concerned about? There are not young men and men in their 20s and 30s who are active in churches, you know, at the best. You know, they might be coming to, to Mass on Sunday, but... It's hard to get them to be involved in real prayer and real retreats and on and on. I've been told, whether by blunt words or so forth, well, you know, that's soft. Church is soft. That's more feminine. That's more for women. Oh, we need strong men who are fathers and single men because we live in a world where there is real division in relationships. And if we don't have strong Catholics who are priests and fathers and, and on and on, we are going to have even more problems. The last point that I want to put in terms of why this all matters, and I'm really not going to say much on this. You know about this. We have just emerged in our nation from a, a horrendous priest pedophilia sex scandal. It embarrasses me to even have to say that, but I am a man of truth, and I want to... State that. I am personally convinced, and I trust that my brother priests, we want to be men of integrity, men of service. We are certainly weak. We are sinners, as you are. But we believe that priesthood is a holy thing. You know, the bishop gives us at our ordination the chalice, and he says, um, to handle holy things with reverence, and priesthood is holy. Your priesthood is holy. Let me um, conclude by just thanking you all for being here tonight, thanking you for your willingness to come out and listen to a, a bit of the church's teaching, and thank you for your love of priesthood. I trust that, you know, whoever your priest is in your, in your church or that you have dealings with, um, you see our vocation as part of what Jesus wants us to do, even as we support you. We support each other. We challenge each other. We love each other. This is what it means to be church. May God bless you. Okay. Well, I guess I ate up your question time, but I think that's okay. No, we would, um, I was told, okay, we have the microphone, so we're going to take some questions. Now, if you have a question, was it raise your hand and then wait for the Phil Donahue, or is it the Dr. Phil, you said? You'd rather be the Dr. Phil to come to you, and um, we'll see. Oh, there's a question. I'm sure there must be some questions. Well, moving out of the uh, Catholic circle, what about the Episcopal groups and uh, some of the others who are fellow Christians? I would say they are also called, but they also have uh, women priests and I think even some women bishops uh, doing wonderful work. Now, I guess, I guess if they're not part of this total church, I would ask, who are they working for then? That's a wonderful question. I did have, in terms of why it really matters, an ecumenical point. And then just because I got too long, I didn't go on that. But I thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's a very important and tough thing to, 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 to answer. First of all, I, I would state this. Um, now, well, well, first of all, you have, we, we do have to state that, you know, our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, it really does no service them to lump them all together because we have to look at, you know, Anglican Episcopals. We have to look at, you know, the Lutherans. In other words, there's a variety of traditions, okay, that has to be stated at the offset. 
Now, really, except for the Anglicans, the other traditions, I don't think any of them except the Anglicans even use the term priest. And that's why I did spend a lot of time in priesthood. A Lutheran minister or pastor is not a priest, and they do not claim to be priests. Um, they mo almost all other Christian denominations talk about you know, a ministry, a mission. They do not talk what I said of ontology. I didn't use that word before, but that's, that's the being. That's the, the who we are, who I am as a priest. It's not enough to, to, you know, in the Catholic Church, I know that probably even in this room we could find women who are more eloquent than I am, who could be better organized, and on and on. It's not because I am so good to do what I do, but we have to, in the Catholic context, look at the, the who we are called to be. I go back to the analogy, the, the, the in persona Christi. We are the only one that really makes that argument and takes that theology seriously. With that said, in terms of well, who are the others working for, um, you know, thankfully, thanks be to God, since Vatican II, we have come out of an age where we are looking at each other as rivals or, or even worse, I mean, where we are tearing each other apart. Um, we are all baptized in the same Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are in a time when the Catholic Church takes ecumenism very seriously, but... On the other extent, we do ourselves no, we do truth no justice when we water our teachings down either. Well, we, wanna, we don't want to make waves with the Lutherans or the Episcopalians and so forth, so let's don't bring up the kind of stuff I was talking about tonight. With love, we have to state our, our theology and teaching clearly while still realizing that there is much that we do have in common. What the answer is, I mean, in terms of a, a common ministry, I am not, I don't think anyone on the face of the earth can see the way that's going to take the Holy Spirit to figure that out. Does that kind of give you, from what you're asking? It doesn't, I know that doesn't fully answer anything, but I want to at least put some. Oh, did it follow up? Uh, after Vatican II, you had uh, Pope John, the beloved jolly Pope. And uh, following that, we had a number of uh, priests who were men who were accepted from the Protestant ministry, and they were married mm -hmm. and were accepted into Catholicism and, and following the priesthood. Right. And that was in Cape Girardeau in uh, Missouri. They had a number of men there. And I remember that I... When John Paul got in, I thought, boy, this is going to come to a screeching halt. And it did, because of his background and the Polish background. Anyway, you're wondering about the extension of priesthood. It's even in baptism that we participate somehow in this priesthood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I think that's part of Catholic theology. Yes, it is. Very clear in Vatican II. But, but again, and, I, and if I, did, I want to make sure I'm very clear too, in Vatican II is very clear there is the common priesthood of the baptized, but the ordained ministry that's obviously related to that is, I think in the words, let me get, you know, I wrote down this, this quote, let me get that exactly. Um, oh, let's see, I'm not sure I'm finding. It, it is, okay, they differ essentially though. They're obviously related, the ordained exists only for the service of the people of God, but they are not the same thing. They're related, they're connected, but they are not the same thing. Holy orders is a different sacrament that exists for the service of the people of God. So, because sometimes, yeah, there are those who want to make the argument, well, I mean, why do we make a big deal? And, you know, we're all in the priesthood of, the beloved, of, of, of believers, and that is true. But the priesthood of believers, of the laity, does not have the sacramental ministry of Eucharist, hearing confessions and so forth. They were provided through the apostles and their successors and their co-workers. Question over here? Uh, yeah, um, it's kind of a several, several part question. Okay. First of all, is there anything in Scripture in the Old Testament or the New Testament that specifically says that women shouldn't be priests or shouldn't be in the position of a priest? Right. 
if there isn't, then are all these interpretations that you've talked about, interpretations that generally through history have been made by men in the Catholic Church. And if that's true, isn't really the position of the Catholic Church uh, a, a continuation of, of what's been throughout history uh, an attempt to subjugate women? I mean, it, throughout history, I think you'd agree, whether it's secular society or, or Islam or, or the Catholic Church, women have always been put in a, in a lower position than men. Uh, the, the nuns take the, position, the, take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The priests just take the vows of chastity and obedience. They can have material things. Uh, the, the nuns cannot celebrate the Eucharist, and, and it's not a matter of right. I agree with you, it's a gift. But that gift has been denied to women in the Catholic Church because throughout history, women have always been denied what men have had. So, if there isn't a specific position in scriptures that says that women can't be priests, and if that's subject to an interpretation, and it's been an interpretation by men, isn't this just a continuation of subjugation of women in the Catholic Church? Boy, I hope not, or I'm going to take off my collar and pack it up. Um, my question to you, then, is um, how do we read scripture? It comes down to how do we read scripture? Um, first of all, you're absolutely right. There is not a single verse in any part of the Bible that says that women are not to be priests. So, yeah, absolutely. However, few thoughts. We, do not, we are not a proof text tradition, like um, you know, so some Christian traditions were, in other words. We only believe what is in the Bible, I mean explicitly. You're not going to find the word assumption of Mary in the Bible or the Immaculate Conception, on and on. So that's not the way we read the Bible, number one. Um, and, I, and I started out with the first argument, and obviously a lot more could have been developed with this, the whole idea of tradition. We read the Bible and we read, and, and we read the Bible and we live the life of the church. Tradition is basically a fancy way of saying is how we go through history until Christ comes again in the power of the Spirit. I would accept your argument if the Catholic Church were merely, again, the Kiwanis Club or any other human institution. We are a divine institution. Now, that does not mean that the Church has not and cannot make errors. I could list a few. I am a historian by by trade, and I'm aware of the church's faults through history. But we also take very seriously, if the church is what the church is, the bride of Christ, then what we do and who we are and how we celebrate our life in terms of the salvation of Christ, there cannot be errors there. There cannot be any fundamental errors. If for 2,000 years we have basically unjustly been then putting women aside, half of the human race, co-heirs with Christ, as I read you from Galatians, wow, then the church is not just a flawed institution. I can almost say she's an evil institution. And I'll tell you, if that is true, I would pack up my bags and find something better. I don't want to give my life for something like that. Now, again, you know, we, we could look at this, but I, if the church is what she is, um, and even in times when the cultures, with the church's help, have not fully brought forth the gifts and talents of women, um, that's true. But that's why I think Vatican II is such a refreshing time, um, a time of the Spirit, as we are. Even though this exact avenue is not open to women, we are called to search, to pray, to seek, and draw forth all the gifts and talents. That's how I would answer that. Yeah. I just, I've been going to these Theology Untapped talks since they got started, and there were a few different talks that really kind of tied in with this. One was um, also on the all-male priesthood and how Mary was so very present with the apostles at all times, but not at the Last Supper, not at the institution of the Eucharist. Also, as a female... Um, and learning more about the female-male roles in the church, um, masculine, feminine, um, those types of things, 
feel, um, do not feel that women are put down, that we are equal, but that we have different roles. And what a beautiful thing that is. Like the reading you spoke of, um, wives be submissive to your husbands, but husbands are supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be subordinate as Christ was to the church, and husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's completely equal. That means I'm going to give everything to be it, if I would become a religious sister or married, that I would give everything that I have to either Christ or my spouse and equally him to me, but that we will have very different roles in that. And um, those other talks that brought out those points really, to me, brought a real beauty to Catholicism. Also, there was one other thing that I can't um, describe, but the difference between doctrine and dogma. And I know that the all-male priesthood ties in with that, but I, I can't explain that. But maybe you can help us understand that more, or even me to hear it again. Yeah. First of all, thank you for, I mean, your, your, your words. And I, I just say in terms of the first part of what you said, um, you know, a lot more could have been said in my talk in terms of male and female, the complementary. That's why I did spend time on human anthropology. It comes down to who the human person is. We are men, we are women, and different but complementary. So um, in terms of you know, how the church sees this as, as, as dogma and so forth, you know, I didn't really get into this, but there's a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of different teachings in the church. And sometimes it said, well, you know, the church changed since Vatican II. We used to have, you know, in Latin and so forth. And, you know, and this and that. I mean, a variety of different things. So why can't this change? Well, first of all, we are looking at things from discipline. You know, for example, there could come a day when a pope or a council would change whether a priest could get married. That is not a dogma. That is what's called the discipline of the church. There was a time when priests were married, and in the Eastern Church, they are married. Um, without using the explicit infallibility charism, John Paul II, in his document from 1994, has as closely as is possible, um, without taking that last step, said that uh, this is a teaching that is not just a discipline. This is part of what priesthood is, and anthropology, and so forth and it is part of Catholic teaching. Because some will say, well, we'll wait for the next pope or the world. We know this is going to change sometime. Well, um, I'm not smart to figure that out, but I, I don't think so. I think we need to approach this, um, not merely just submission, what the church has said so. We want to understand, but this is a key teaching. For some, it's a painful teaching. For some, you know, don't understand, but you know, what you are doing tonight, you have come here tonight, and whatever your opinions are, wherever you think the arguments I've presented, you have taken time to listen and to learn the church's teaching. There's a lot of people out there, from seculars to even some of the pews, who will just say, ah, well, women should be ordained, but who have never looked at the catechism, have never thought about this. And that's kind of a, a weak approach to very important things. A lot of teachings in the Catholic Church. Ah, oh, well, I don't agree with that. Well, have you prayed about it? Have you studied it? Do you know why at least the church says that? You have made a few steps tonight, at least, you know, to, to listen to the arguments. Just one other question that's somewhat related, but maybe is a little different. What is the church's current position on a, a man who is of gay sexual orientation entering the priesthood? Okay. There was a document that was just issued in the last few months um, on this question, and um, I'm not going to you know, get the explicit um, you know, verbatim words. Um, basically, and I am going to ask Father Christensen if, to help me here, because I think you, know, you perhaps... Uh, might even know a little bit more than I do. Um, uh, that's right, put him on the spot here. Um, a man who, who desires to go into the seminary and seek ordination, who has a homosexual inclination, and again, there's gonna, there are a few different interpretations, that of itself would not automatically disqualify 100%. However, and if, for example, he is 
um, involved in, for lack of a better term, gay culture, support, you know, involvement and so forth, or in, in, a, in, a, in a relationship, um, then he would not be allowed and would not be allowed in the seminary if this is found out or ordained. Um, if it's someone, uh, to maybe on the, on the flip side of, of explaining this, if it's someone perhaps in a certain age of one's life was experimenting, had an experience, but they don't feel that this is their sexual identity, and that was years ago, that would not automatically disqualify them. But if someone so says, this is my identity, I am a gay male, and take it or leave it, no, that person would not be allowed to be ordained, in, you know, in theory. And did, I, did I get it right? Okay. Well, I took a lot of your time, I, um, even longer than I expected. Again, thank you for your thoughtful questions. I, I appreciate that, and thank you for your time. And um, let's continue, I pray, to pray for our priests and to support each other and um, to continue to learn about our faith. May God bless you.